Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. So good to see you today. And uh, during December, we are together gonna be studying Matthew chapter one and two and looking at how Christmas shows us that God is with us. And we are beginning today exactly where Matthew begins. If you open your Bible to the first page of the New Testament, Matthew chapter one, verses one through 17, you will see that Matthew begins his account of Christmas with a genealogy. And he does this because a genealogy helps him tell the story that God wanted him to tell, which is a story of grace. Matthew gives us, in these verses, a genealogy of grace. Now, I hope you have your Bible open. If you don't, you'll wanna go ahead and and get there. And as you look at this genealogy, um, I want you to think about this. If you don't know anything about Jesus, and you wanna learn more about this man who has impacted world history more than any other, this, this man who, whose birth we recognize every time we consult a calendar, this man who has over two billion followers in the world today, if you want to start his story at the beginning, this is where you'd start. Page one of the New Testament. So you open the New Testament and you look, and the first thing you see is this long list of odd ancient names. Names like Hezron and Aminadab. Some dude named Salmon, like they named him after a fish. And then there's names like Jehoshaphat and Uzziah and Zerubbabel. I mean, who are these people and who cares, right? I mean, you wanna say, Matthew, what were you thinking? This is not a good way to draw people into the story. And yet, this is exactly how Matthew starts his story of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't an accident, and it wasn't a bad decision. We believe that God's Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to do precisely this. And so the question we must ask is, why? Why? Now, Matthew is the only gospel writer to do this. We have four accounts of Jesus' life. And one intriguing fact at Christmas is this. Two gospels don't say anything about Jesus' birth at all. Mark and John, they start with John the Baptist's ministry 30 years after Jesus was born. Only Matthew and Luke start with Jesus' birth. And Luke, he launches his gospel in a really interesting way with this very intriguing story. Angels show up, they announce the birth of two different boys, one to this old childless couple that had given up on ever having a family. Another angel comes and and announces to a 13, 14 or so year old virgin teenager. She's informed by this angel that her child will be born and will be the son of God. So Luke He begins with a story, and it's a good one. That means that three of the four gospels start with a story, but Matthew starts with a genealogy. Why? Well, to see what he was up to, we need to go back in time thousands of years, and I want you first just to listen to how Matthew begins, because he eventually gets to Christmas, but he starts like this. Verse one, chapter one, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. 
Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boab, Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliad, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. So, Let's be honest right now. How many of you zoned out like a little while I was reading that? Um, how many of you, you know, when you're reading your Bible and you come to a section like this, you either kind of just skim it or you just skip over it completely? We just raise your hands. I mean, we're in church and you call yourselves Christians, <laughs> fully devoted followers, whatever, you know. Well, why? Why does Matthew begin his gospel with a genealogy? And there are at least two reasons I wanna mention to you. The first one is simply to persuade his audience, uh, which all scholars agree is primarily Jewish. Matthew is gonna make a claim throughout the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. And so the first question that any Jewish audience would ask was, is Jesus related to David? God promised the Messiah would come and be a son of David. And so Matthew is answering that very big question first. And he does it by very carefully constructing what we might call a theological genealogy. He doesn't write his genealogy the way that we would do it. He, he doesn't include every ancestor in every generation of Jesus. He just includes those who support his central point that Jesus is related to David. And, and that's what the, the 14 generations are actually about. Now, sometimes in Hebrew, numeric values are assigned to letters, and, and that's what we see here. David's name in Hebrew actually only has three letters. If you wanna think about it in a way that makes sense to us, you can think about it as D and V and D. And the D is the Hebrew letter Dalit. Uh, it's the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The V is, is the Hebrew letter Vav, uh, which is the sixth letter. And so you add four plus six plus four, and you get 14. 
And so David's name equals 14. And then you intensify that three times, which is a common uh, Hebraism of, of emphasizing something, and you have 42. D.A. Carson, noted New Testament scholar, I got to study under him in my PhD program a number of years ago. In his commentary, he writes this, observe that the numeric value of David in Hebrew is 14. And by this symbolism, Matthew points that the promised son of David, the Messiah, has come. And so Matthew is, is writing a genealogy in such a way that it speaks to a specific audience that he wants to convince of his central message. And he also, for a second reason, does it to introduce that message. You see, Matthew's genealogy is just full of truths about Jesus that, that Matthew's gonna be unfolding all through this gospel. And he intentionally does some very unusual things. First, he includes women. Now, in ancient cultures, genealogies ran through fathers. And Matthew's point, as I just told you, was that Jesus was related to David through his father. So why include women? In addition, Matthew emphasizes women that most of us would probably leave out if we were writing a genealogy of God's son. He includes some women of questionable character. Why in the world would Matthew do that? Because it doesn't seem to help him make his point. See, back then, histories were written to make powerful people look good. Uh, they were usually written by kings who hired historians to make big deals of their military victories and then to ignore their defeats. In those histories, the, the king's sons who were successful and famous as warriors would be highlighted and then the historian would just skip over the sons who didn't turn out so well. But Matthew goes out of his way and to make us wonder about some of these people in Jesus' family tree, people he didn't even need to mention. Just look at that first part of the genealogy again. Verses one through six uh, mention four women. I'm kind of highlighting some things so you can see them. Three of these women aren't even Jewish. Now, why would Matthew point out that Jesus doesn't have a pure Jewish bloodline? That's not gonna help him convince his Jewish readers that Jesus is Messiah, you pick it up at verse three, it says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. I'm gonna be coming back here, but just know now that this is a very R-rated, very creepy story. There's no reason to mention Tamar. It's like, stick with the men, Matthew. Stick with the storyline. Why Tamar? Verse five tells us about Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. He throws in another woman here who's not Jewish, and Rahab, she has a shady past. She was a prostitute. Now, in your family, you may have a grandparent or two with some history, but no one brings it up at Thanksgiving, right? No one says, hey, Grandpa, pass the gravy, and tell us that story again how you met Grandma when she was hooking. No reason to talk about that, right? Still in verse five, it says, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, that's a good story. But again, Ruth wasn't Jewish. Ruth was from Moab, and the Moabites were sworn enemies of the Jewish people. They were the bad guys. No one liked them. I mean, 2,000 years ago, being a Moabite was sort of like being a Raiders fan. Not good. <laughs> so Ruth's story, it's nice, but it's kind of distracting. 
You go, Matthew, you're trying to convince Jewish people Jesus is David's son, he's God's son. Why, why all these offerings? Why all this sideways energy? And then it's Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. It's like, okay, now, now we get to where we need to be. Why not stop here? But no, he writes, David was the father of Solomon. And look how he writes this. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And it's like, Matthew, just say David was the father of Solomon and Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Why do you throw this in? He doesn't even say the woman's name, but everybody knows who she is, right? I mean, just shout it out. What's her name? Bathsheba, right? We all know Matthew doesn't say whose mother was Bathsheba. That would have been bad enough. He makes it worse. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And his Jewish readers are like, why why do you have to bring this up? I mean, we want to remember David's victories. Not that. Because this big, ugly scar in David's life was when he had abused his power to have sex with the wife of one of his best friends. And then to cover up his sin, he sends that friend Uriah back into battle so he could die. He murders him. David steals his wife. It's like the lowest, worst moment of David's life. And again, Matthew's not even started the main story yet. It's not even gotten to Jesus. It's like he's just going out of his way to create all this kind of distraction. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Like you stick the knife in and just twist it, why don't you? Why not just stick with the men's names? And another thing. There are some other women Matthew could have mentioned, but he doesn't. He doesn't mention Sarah, Abraham's wife. He doesn't mention Rebecca or some other wonderful women who did incredible things. Just throws in Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Solomon's mother who had been Uriah's wife. Why? Why? Well, here's why. Matthew spent three years with Jesus. He heard Jesus teach. He saw him live his life He watched Jesus die on a cross. He stood next to an empty tomb. Matthew knew that all of these shady characters with all of their baggage, all of their sin, all of their shame, Matthew knew that they were the point of why Jesus came. They were the point of the story he's about to tell. They were the reason Jesus came because their sin was the issue Jesus came to address. And he just wanted his readers, that's us, to understand so clearly that Jesus didn't just come for sinners. See, Matthew wanted the world to know that Jesus came from sinners. And that was okay because that was the point. You see, Matthew, he knew firsthand that Jesus' story was a story about light invading the darkness, uh, life invading this world of death, about grace breaking down the walls created by the law. And then there's another thing that Matthew knew. And I think maybe, maybe this is what motivated him to add all of these seedy, shady characters into his genealogy. You see, for Matthew, this was also his story. People like Judah and Tamar and Rahab, they were his people, his friends. Remember, he was a tax collector. He was a a traitor to his own people. He was a cheater, a thief, a liar. He was an outcast. 
And Matthew, as he thought through his own story, he realized that in the story he was about to write, including sinners in the genealogy, wasn't a distraction. It was the point. It was the point. You know, maybe Matthew understood better than any of the other gospel writers that Christmas is a story about God drawing near to people who had drawn far away from him. See, Matthew's genealogy teaches us Jesus didn't come for the good people. Jesus didn't come for the people who think they have it all together. Jesus came for the people who figure out they can never make it on their own. See, Matthew, he realized. He realized that he needed to highlight these problems in the genealogy, not only because there were these people there in the lineage of Jesus, but because they were why Jesus came in the first place. Do you remember over in Luke's account when the angel announces Jesus' birth, he announces the birth of a savior? Well, savior from what? He's a savior from sin. That's the point. God sent a savior. And so the genealogy is the perfect launch to the Christmas story because it highlights the world's need for a savior. Let me ask a question. Anyone here who thinks that God could never really love them. Maybe you have a lot of sexual sin in your life. Any adulterers here? Any sex addicts here? You know, it's possible there's someone here who has even at one time or another prostituted themselves, sold their, their body. Well, Jesus has great, 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 great grandparents just like you. Any thieves? Any liars? Anyone here who's committed sin you are so ashamed of that you can never imagine being truly clean again? Just look at the people on this list. You see, the message of Matthew's genealogy is just straightforward. Jesus came to save sinners. And he tells us that right from the start. He's saying to us, this is what Christmas is all about. Christmas is not about us being good enough. It's not about us cleaning up our acts enough so that God will accept us and God will love us. Christmas is about sinners who need salvation and a loving father who sends his son into the world to save those sinners. That's what it's about That's what Matthew wants his readers to hear. That's why he just goes out of his way to highlight, italicize, and boldface all the crazy, colorful, R-rated, even kind of creepy characters in this genealogy. Now, there are four particular stories here that stand out, stories that surprise and, and teach us. You might call them grace notes in Jesus' family tree, in this genealogy of grace. And we could actually spend like a whole month of messages here. But I wanna just briefly mention the surprises we see in three stories. And you can go back to them and read about them later. And then we're gonna dive more deeply into the fourth. And we're gonna start kind of at the end and we're gonna work our way back. And so that means we begin with David's story. And David's story teaches us that God's grace is greater than my worst sin. Does anybody need to hear that today? You see, if, if God had ever written anyone off, it would have been David. Just to recall his story, David had abused one of his best friend's wives for his own sexual pleasure. He then had that friend murdered to cover up his sin. And yet, God forgave him, 
God restored him. God made David one of the ancestors of the Messiah. Who here today needs to be surprised by that truth? The next story is Ruth's story. Ruth's story teaches us that God's grace is greater than my status in society. She was this poor widow. She was a refugee. She was a member of a despised ethnic group and yet God showed her favor. Maybe today you think you're a nobody. You don't think your life has any real significance. This genealogy is telling you that you're wrong. Rahab's story, Rahab's story teaches us that God's grace is greater than my labels. You know, there are some people that we kind of all know by their label, right? I mean, you can help me with this. There's, there's John the, what? John the Baptist. This is a call out and response time, okay? I'm just helping you warm up. Uh, there's John the, and then there's Alexander the, you know that one. There's Attila the, there's Conan the barbarian. There's Buffy the, all significant historical figures. Um, well, Rahab also had a label. She was Rahab the harlot, the prostitute. And she could have lived her entire life with that label, but God's grace came and saved her and redeemed her and, and made her part of the genealogy of Jesus, part of God's family. And I just wonder today, maybe this speaks to some of us, have others labeled you? Have you labeled yourself, do you need to let God's grace surprise you? That brings us to our final story and we're gonna spend more time here. We're gonna spend the rest of our time looking at this story. It's probably one you haven't looked at recently. For many of us, maybe never. It's Judah's story. And if you go back to verse one of Matthew's gospel, it says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so Matthew connects, he connects Jesus to David and Abraham up front. And then verse two, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And here his Jewish readers would have paused because he reminds them of something we might miss if we're not familiar with the Old Testament. And it, it really is Matthew's first surprise in the genealogy. He says, Judah and his brothers. Now Judah had 11 brothers and really only one of them is very well known and that's Joseph. Maybe you've heard of the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors. Maybe you saw the musical. A lot of people know a little about Joseph's story, but not very many people know Judah's story. But Matthew doesn't mention Joseph. Instead, it's Judah and his brothers. Now, why highlight Judah? Because the truth is, anyone who compares Jew, Joseph's story to Judah's would, would guess that, that God would choose Joseph to, to bring his son into the world in his line, not Judah's line. Because everything about Joseph's story is just remarkable. He's, he's this man of unbelievable character who experiences horrible injustice. And yet at the very end of his story, he becomes a, a savior. He saves his family. He saves an entire nation. It's like he's the perfect picture of Jesus. Joseph seems like the perfect ancestor of Jesus. So many parallels between their lives. But God picks Judah. 
Why? Well, the answer again is because that's the point of the gospel. That's the point of the whole story Matthew was telling. Now, Judah's story begins in Genesis 37, and, and the truth is, Judah's kind of a footnote that's stuck in the middle of the longer story of his famous younger brother, Joseph. Here's how his story begins, Genesis 37, starting in verse 23. The, the backstory here that you would know if you've read it is Judah and his brothers are jealous of Joseph because Joseph's the favorite son, and their father, Jacob, has made Joseph this beautiful coat, and one day, Jacob sends Joseph out to find the brothers to check on them and bring a report back. And, and when he does, Judah is with them when Joseph comes. And verse 23 says, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Verse 25, as they sat down to eat their meal, stop right there, it's like, What? Yeah, yeah, they throw their brother in an empty well and then they eat lunch. Just hear what's happening. They looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And here's where we meet Judah, verse 26. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Guys, I've been thinking, it's like as he's munching on a chicken wing or something. I've been thinking, why don't we make some money out of this? You know, apparently Judah's the leader. He says in verse 27, come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own fresh flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. Real sweet, huh? We won't kill brother. Let's just sell him into slavery. So say hello to Judah from whom our savior eventually comes. He's not a murderer, he's just a human trafficker. And Joseph trudges off to Egypt in chains. Joseph is gone and Judah thinks he'll never see him again as he divides the bronze and copper coins among the 10 brothers. You know, we know that Joseph was probably just a teenager and the 11 brothers then take that beautiful coat of his, they dip it in animal blood, they do the unthinkable. They take that coat to their father and they say, look, dad, we found this. Must have been an animal that killed your son. We couldn't even find his body. This is all that's left of Joseph. They break their father's heart. They decide to live with their secret and take it to the grave. You know, the money would have soon been gone, but the memory is not, the guilt is not. They're, they're gonna live the rest of their lives knowing they sold their brother into slavery. And for 20 years, every time they gather with their father, there's an empty chair at the table. Every year on Joseph's birthday, his father mourns and Judah knows and he never cracks, he never confesses. He knows he's responsible because he was the leader. Now, Joseph's story is found in Genesis 37 to 50 and it's interesting that again, only two of the brothers have a story and Joseph's story is actually the longest story about any one individual in the Old Testament, and Judah's story gets kind of stuck in the middle. He only gets one chapter, but in the chapter, uh, that one chapter, we learn about Judah's life. We discover what kind of person he is. Here's what happens. Joseph is gone, and Judah gets on with his life. He's a shepherd, he gets married, he has 
kids. The first three are boys. And with that, look at verses six and seven. And I just wanna warn you, if you have a kid here, it might be a good time. Take them to kids' ministry or maybe to the bathroom because there's some interesting stuff coming. Judah's first son marries a woman named Tamar and he dies before they have any kids. We don't know why, but we're told that he was wicked in the Lord's sight and so the Lord put him to death. And maybe you know about the custom and the culture of that day when a brother died, the, the next brother was responsible to marry the deceased brother's wife and to have children to carry on the line of the first brother. And in verses eight through 10, well, we learned that the second brother doesn't wanna have kids by her. And so whenever they came together, he, he made sure he didn't quite seal the deal. Uh, the KJV puts it kind of delicately. He, quote, spilled it on the ground so that he wouldn't give seed to his brother. And the text tells us the second son was also wicked in the Lord's sight, and so God put him to death also. Well, what that means now is that according to the custom, Judah is now responsible for Tamar. And so he says to her, I'll take care of you. When my third son is old enough, I will marry you to him. He says that, but he doesn't mean that. Because he's looking at Tamar and thinking, she's two for two with my kids. And I don't want to give her a third. And so she waits and she waits, years pass for this younger son. He's gonna grow up and he's supposed to be given to her. That's the only real hope that she had for survival in that culture. But Judah's afraid. He doesn't want to lose his third son. And eventually it becomes clear that he has no intention of taking care of Tamar. And at some point, she decides to take matters into her own hands. Verse 14 says she disguises herself as a prostitute. She covers her face. She goes and sits at a place she knows that Judah will pass by. And he comes, and he doesn't recognize her, which tells you how little he pays attention to this daughter-in-law he's supposed to be taking care of, protecting. And he hires this prostitute for a goat. I guess... That was like the going rate for that sort of thing 3,000 years ago. But he doesn't have the goat with him. And so he says, I'll send you the goat. And she says, I need a pledge. I need some collateral. And she tells him she wants two things. She wants his staff and she wants his seal that has a cord attached to it. It's sort of like a driver's license passport. He agrees. They have sex. They go home. He tells the servant, hey, I owe a temple prostitute a goat. Don't want to talk about it. Just, just take her the goat, okay? Just go take her the goat. Not very Christmassy, I know. But this is Matthew's story. The servant goes. The servant can't find a prostitute anywhere. He asks around, and no one knows about any prostitute that works there. The servant returns, and well, this is kind of embarrassing. Judah doesn't want to create a big scene, so he just decides to drop it, and we pick the story up in verse 24. Three months later, someone comes running to his house. Judah, Judah, you won't believe it. Tamar has played the harlot. She's pregnant. And then Judah does what every person does who has a secret, what every person does who's pretending to be something they're not. Judah gets real self-righteous. Let me ask you, have you ever met someone who was self, so, so self-righteous and like a year or so later, everyone found out they had a secret? Ever met anyone who just like hammers and hammers on an issue and then you discover they secretly struggle with that issue? Did you know that's human nature? 
Did you know that if you're an unbroken person with a secret, with a, with a point of shame and, and no one knows but you, it often will manifest itself in self-righteousness? You know, some of the most self-righteous people I've met are the people I trust the least because I think you have a secret, don't you? And Judah, he just gets angry. He kind of flames out, says, she is shamed by family. He says, burn her alive. And you're like, burn her? Time out, Judah. I mean, you sold your brother into slavery. You've been breaking your dad's heart for 20 years. You're carrying that secret to the grave. I mean, you broke your promise to Tamar to take care of her and forced her into this life of shame. How can you say that? Well, the day comes. They're gonna burn Tamar alive. But the funny thing is, Tamar has something that belongs to Judah. Verses 25 and 26, it says she sends a messenger to Judah. The messenger has a staff in one hand and has this this seal and a cord in the other hand. And he says, Judah, uh, Tamar said to give you a message. I don't know what this is about, but she said, I am with child by the man to whom these belong. What, What is she talking about, Judah? Do you know this message means? And Judah says, okay, that was a bad idea. Put the matches away, no burning today. Let's just go along our our way. (laughs) And he goes to Tamar and he falls down on his knees and he says, Tamar, you are more righteous than I because I didn't do what I said I would do. And verse 27 says, Tamar gave birth to a little boy. His name was Perez. And he's in the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. By by the way, is anybody feeling a little bit better about your family, like right around now? And for you parents who chose not to take your kids to the bathroom or to kids' ministry, you're welcome. Uh, Merry Christmas, my gift, my gift to you. This is some messy stuff, right? And and we're kind of thinking, Matthew, Matthew, you could have skipped over that daughter-in-law, father-in-law, ooh, now we, now we have a kid in Jesus' line who should have never been born. It just messes the whole thing up. You left some good names out. Why didn't you leave that one out? And Matthew mentions Tamar by name. And it's the kind of thing that most of us in our families would hide and, and bury and hope no one discovers. Unless it's the point of the story. Well, the story's not over for Judah. About 20 years after he sold Joseph into slavery, you know, thinking he's never gonna see him again. There's this famine in the land. Maybe you remember this story from Sunday school class. In Genesis 42, um, Jacob calls all the sons together and says, hey, you gotta go to Egypt to buy grain because that was the only place where there was any food in that whole region. And they go to Egypt, and when they get there, guess who they find is in charge of the grain? Their brother Joseph. He's the prime minister of Egypt. He's gone from being a a slave all the way up to one of the most powerful men in the world. It's an incredible story. And they don't recognize Joseph. (laughs) Last time they saw him, he was a teenager and now he's an Egyptian ruler. And he dresses like an Egyptian and he talks like an Egyptian and yes, he walks like an Egyptian. (laughs) But Joseph recognizes them 
And he kind of begins to mess with them. He, he sets them up. He, he's trying to see if they've changed in any way. At times, Joseph is just so overwhelmed with emotion that he runs out of the room and weeps. And then he'll come back and he powers up again. And it just goes on and on. And they have no idea why this prime minister is taking so much interest in them. They, they eventually get back to their father and they say, something's weird that's going on there. This prime minister wants us to bring Benjamin back. And Jacob says, there's no way you can't. Last time I sent my son away, it didn't turn out well. And they say, well, he's not gonna sell us any more grain. I mean, you just have to read this story. It's an amazing story. But here's how it all culminates. This is in Genesis 45, starting in verse three. Eventually, they're in a room, all 11 brothers. And Joseph, the prime minister, sends all the Egyptians out of the room. And then he says to his brothers, I am Joseph. It's one of the most dramatic scenes in all of literature. I am Joseph, your brother. And there on his face is Judah. And Judah's probably thinking, what in the world would I do if the roles were reversed? What would I do to the man who sold me into slavery if I now had the power to take his life? And Judah knows what he would do. He has never broken. He's never confessed. He's never allowed his brothers to tell the truth about what they did to Joseph. Judah knew the selfishness that had driven his whole life. And now he's on his face before the man who has power over life and death. And Joseph says to Judah and his brothers, get up. He says, I forgive you. In fact, he says, I will take care of your families. Go get our father. Later on, in an amazing way, Joseph says to these brothers, God used your evil to put me here. And here's what he's saying. It's so powerful. He says to them, it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Joseph trusted so much in God's sovereign providence in his life that even though he suffered so much evil, God was at work and he could trust in that. You know, Joseph, as I said before, he's like the perfect picture of a savior. And God looks down and God says, I think I'll skip the savior and I'll go with the liar and the thief. I'll bring my son into the world through Judah, not Joseph. And Matthew just underscores that little snippet of history in his genealogy. And do you know why? Do you know why? Because on that day, on his face, Judah was a picture of you and of me. And that's the point. That's why Jesus came. Judah was the picture of a person who deserved one thing and got something else. A picture of someone who learned God's grace is available to me even though I've been very far from God. God skips Joseph the righteous and chooses Judah the unrighteous to bring his son into the world. It's incredible. It's remarkable, isn't it? That's the point of Christmas. It's the story of grace and that's what Matthew wants us to see. It's kind of like he's saying, you know, listen, before we get to the Jesus part, I wanna remind you of the way it's always been. God has always chosen the broken people, the messed up people, the people with a past, the people hiding secrets, the people who don't think they have any hope. And God has always said that anyone who wants has access to my grace and Matthew is just saying, that's what I'm gonna be telling you about 
as I tell you Jesus the Messiah's story. That's so amazing. And think about it, isn't it true? That's your story. That's my story. We are the point of Christmas. God came into this world to offer grace to people who didn't deserve it. God's grace is available even to those who never made themselves available to God. You know what I've discovered? When we stop trying to make ourselves good enough for God and simply just receive the gift of his grace, that is when we find peace with God. That is when you find forgiveness to deal with your past. That is when you find strength to push past the shame, to deal with the secrets. See, some of you, some of you, you came here today just to hear this. Judah's story teaches us that God's grace is greater than our secrets. So here's my question for you. Do you have a secret? Did you marry her with a secret? Did you marry him with a secret? And it just gnaws at you. You know, maybe, maybe you're someone who says to yourself, even today sitting in this room right now, I don't think I could ever have peace with God because I don't know how to fix my past. I try to pay it back. I try to make it up. I try to compensate, but I just can't get past it. I just can't seem to forgive myself. Is that you? Well, I have great news It's Christmas, it's Christmas. God has sent his son into this world. He is Jesus, Emmanuel, he is God with us. His grace is available for you today. And that means your life can change today. And again, it doesn't begin by cleaning up your act. It doesn't begin by making yourself good enough. It begins just like it did that day over 3,000 years ago when Judah on his face looked up at his brother and received exactly what he did not deserve. That's how grace always begins. And so today, God says to those of you with a past, with shame, with secrets, with things you plan to take with you to your grave. He says to you, I am inviting you today to accept what I've done for you in my son. I sent Jesus and he came into this world and he lived a perfect life and he died on a cross in your place and I raised him from the dead and today he's alive and reigning at my right hand and you can be forgiven if you will repent of your sins and receive the gift of my grace, my salvation. That's why Jesus came. And so Judah became the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, God's son sent into the world. Here's something else that's amazing. Years are gonna go by. Jacob's about to die. And this is hundreds of years before any of these things are gonna take place. He calls each of his 12 sons in and he gives them a blessing. And you can read about it for yourself in Genesis 49. And what he said to Judah, again, hundreds of years before there was ever a kingdom of Israel, hundreds of years before David was born, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus even showed up, Jacob, the father, 
put his hands on Judah the son, Judah the deceiver, Judah who broke his heart for 20 years. And he said, Judah, through you and through your descendants, a king will come and your brothers and their families will bow down to him. And centuries later, a little boy named David was born and he became a king. And centuries after that, eventually, a son named Jesus was born and he became the Messiah. Do you see? It's not a new message. No one has access to the Father through their own goodness. Access to God has always come through his grace, through his mercy. And this is what Christmas invites us to. And I'm just asking you, if you've never seen it before, will you see it today? Will you accept it today? Will you receive it today? Christmas is about a savior who came for sinners. And no matter what you have done, no matter how long you've been doing it, no matter how many people you have hurt, Christmas is for sinners who will repent and receive grace. Never forget that Christmas is about a savior. His name is Jesus. He came for sinners. He came from sinners. It's a genealogy of grace. It's for people like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, people like David, people like Bathsheba, people like Matthew, and people like you and me. We're the point of the story. And this is God's word for us today. Would you bow your heads as we pray?